Today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 21, verses 7 through 26. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, my brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Over a five-year stretch, Nevada's primary psychiatric hospital came up with a very novel way to deal with their mentally ill patients. They put them on Greyhound buses, and they shipped them across America to various cities. According to one report, newspaper report in Las Vegas, uh, they shipped over 1,500 mentally ill patients across America, with at least one of them going to every state in the continental United States. There were within that even more tragic and sad stories of how this was done. There was one man, he was 48 years old, struggling with schizophrenia. And they put him on a Greyhound bus. They shipped him to Sacramento, a place he had never been before and a place where he knew no one. And they sent him without medication, without identification, and without access to his social security payments. 
He lingered around an emergency room for about three days before social workers finally got hold of him and were able to put him in temporary housing. Now, that's a, that's a sad and tragic story. But it's one that captures the way that we seek to find comfort in the burdens of life. We are convinced that we will find comfort and ease if we can just ship off our burdens. So if someone, if a person is burdening us, we ship them off. Maybe not physically, but emotionally. We reject them, we ignore them, we ship them off. If we're burdened by the circumstances of life, then we seek ways to get rid of the circumstance. If we're burdened by our sin, we seek ways to ship our sin off by managing it, by minimizing it. The problem is, you never, never find comfort by trying to get rid of your burdens. So it begs the question then, what is your comfort in the burdens of life? What is your comfort in the burdens of life? First, that Christ loves you. That Christ loves you. Paul was staying in Caesarea, and while he was there, this prophet, Agabus, comes down from Judea, takes Paul's belt, and ties his hands and feet together and says in verse 11, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Because of this prophecy, all of Paul's friends and companions urge him not to go to Jerusalem, fearing that he will lose his life. Paul responds to this, in verse 13, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a very similar dynamic that we saw when Paul was in Ephesus. He, he proclaims the gospel in Ephesus. A riot breaks out in the streets. The riot gets so big, they have to move into the theater in the center of town and Paul says, I'm going to the theater. And his friends say, no, you're not. You're gonna die if you go into the middle of that theater. And Paul listened to him. He didn't go. He didn't go into the theater. Here we have a very similar situation. Prophet warns that when you go to Jerusalem, you're gonna get in prison, you may die. And his friends say, so don't go. This time Paul doesn't listen. This time Paul says, I'm going. Why? Why was Paul so set 
on getting to Jerusalem? Why was he so set on getting to Jerusalem? Well, remember, Paul was a Jew. Yes, God had called him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, but Paul was a Jew. And we learn something about his heart towards his fellow people in Romans chapter nine, verses one through four. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Paul had a deep, deep love for the Jews, for his fellow people the very ones that were arresting him and beating him and trying to kill him. He loved these people. And this deep love he had persevered through these threats of punishment and threats of death. This love he had for these Jewish people was a love that couldn't be deterred even by their hate of him. It was a deep love. There was another man who was absolutely set on going to Jerusalem. Luke, who is the author of Acts, writes about this man in his Gospel of Luke. Chapter nine, verses 51. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In this verse, Luke is just echoing and picking up on the words of Isaiah the prophet. When Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, says in Isaiah chapter 50, verse seven, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I, speaking of the Messiah to come, have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus set his face like flint on Jerusalem. Now, what's flint? Well, if you were to go to southern Israel today and, and view the various rock formations in southern Israel, you would find black lines that run through the entire formation. And these black lines are flint. When flint is struck by steel, it actually sparks. It's incredibly hard. It's harder than the, the rock around it that it goes through. Flint is used in other parts of Scripture to describe unwavering determination, this incredible resolve to not be denied. Jesus, even though he knew when he went to Jerusalem that he would be arrested and beaten 
and mocked and facing an agonizing death, even though he knew all of that, he would not be denied from going to Jerusalem. He would go and accomplish his purpose. And you say, what produces that kind of resolve? It's love. It's a deep, deep love that is disconnected from performance. Jesus was set on going to Jerusalem ultimately to die for the very ones who would arrest him, beat him, torture him, and kill him. It's a love disconnected from performance. It's a love that cannot be deterred by the hate of the other because it's a love that is absolutely unconditional, that exists regardless of the response of the other. Probably the closest thing that we have to understanding this kind of love would be the love of a parent for a child. Even when you consider marriage, you think about marriage, at some point you met your spouse and you courted or dated your spouse, you had to learn to love that person. You didn't always love that person. But with children, it's different. Right? The child in the womb, you have this deep love for before they have ever had a chance to disappoint you or impress you. There's this deep abiding love. Donald Miller shares the story of a friend whose alcoholism was, was destroying his life, absolutely destroying his life. It had ruined his marriage. Uh, he was actually a very kind and brilliant man, was, was very gifted, had been gifted by God, but alcoholism was taking him down. He had become suicidal. They had to remove his kids from the home. And so Donald Miller goes to visit his friend, and he said he arrived and had to pull him out of a closet. And he said he sat there and, and spoke with him long into the night. And when he got back on his plane to go back to Portland, he was worried. Even though his friend had agreed to check himself into rehab, he, he was worried he wasn't gonna make it. Two months later, he comes back to visit his friend who had been sober for a period of time. And as he sat down and talked to him, his friend said there was one incident, one incident that gave him the strength and the resolve to continue to press on through this painful recovery process. He said his father flew in for one of his recovery meetings. And he sat next to him in this recovery meeting with a, a room full of addicts. And he had to share and confess his weaknesses and his issues in front of the whole group, in front of his father. And after he shared, his father stood up and addressed the group of addicts His father looked at his son and said, I have never loved my son as much as I do at this moment. 
I love him. I want all of you to know that I love him. And his friend said that at that moment, it was the first time in his life that he could believe that maybe God actually loved him as well. And that started and continued to work him through his process of recovery. Christ's love for you is what the scriptures call a covenantal love. It is a love that is not connected to your performance. It's not a love that's connected to even your person. It's a love that is born out of the heart of Christ for you. And that's why it cannot be deterred by your performance in the same way that the love of a parent for a child is never deterred by what that child does. It's that kind of love. It never changes. It cannot be deterred by your sin. It can't, you can't shake free from it. It never lets go because it's a love that is not born out of your performance or your person. It's born out of the heart of Christ. When you tell your child, there is nothing you can do that will make me stop love you. But if you, if you tell your child that, there's nothing you can do that will make me stop loving you, albeit imperfect, you are expressing and experiencing covenant love. On this Palm Sunday, the day we celebrate, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus arriving in Jerusalem, having set his face like flint on Jerusalem, we're reminded that he did it out of a deep, deep love for you and for all that he would rescue. What's your comfort in the burdens of life? What is your comfort in the burdens of life? It's that Christ loves you deeply and you can't shake free from that love. Second, though, your comfort in the burdens of life is that Christ takes on your burdens. He takes on your burdens. When Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he's greeted by the elders. He shares with the elders what God had done through his ministry to the Gentiles, they rejoice, but then they express concern. Verses 20 and 21. They say, you see, brother, you see, Paul, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. There were false rumors that were circulating about Paul. They had accused Paul of teaching the Jews to forsake and reject Moses. They had accused Paul of, of telling the Jews not to get circumcised and to not follow the customs of the Jews. Now, 
Yes, Paul denounced circumcision when it was viewed as almost an insurance policy among the Gentiles, that if faith in Christ wasn't quite enough, that circumcision would be that insurance policy to assure them of their salvation. Paul outright denounces that as a departure from the gospel. But circumcision in and of itself to Paul was a matter of indifference. It didn't affect or change one's status before God. He says in, in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Paul's view, a Jew could observe the, the custom of circumcision as long it was, as it was understood that it was not the means to salvation. In Paul's view, if a Jewish father came to know Christ and started following Christ and wanted to circumcise his son to follow the customs, Paul had no problem with that. As long as it was understood to not be a means of salvation. So Paul was not teaching the Jewish believers to abandon their customs. And this would explain why he responded the way he did to the proposed solution by the elders in Jerusalem for the rumors that were circulating. Now, what was this proposed solution by the elders to fix this rumor problem? Verse 23 to 24. The elders say, do therefore, Paul, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the, of the law. Now, this is a little strange. What's going on here? What is this vow that these four men took? Well, the shaving of the head is a, is a clue. That takes us back to the Nazarite vow in, in Numbers chapter six. They were under a Nazarite vow. You say, what is that? Well, in Numbers six, it was called the vow of the Nazarites, and it was a vow, temporary vow, that was taken to separate a person from something and separate them to the Lord. So in a Nazarite vow, the person would separate from strong drink and wine for a season. They'd separate from alcohol for a season. Uh, they wouldn't cut their hair so that they could separate themselves to the Lord. That's what these four men were under and the elders say, Paul, why don't you join them in their vow? Now, Paul couldn't take the full Nazarite vow. It was a 30-day vow, and they were already in the middle of it. Probably what they encouraged Paul to do was to take uh, the vow, similar vow in Numbers 19, that was for someone that was coming from an unclean or a foreign land. And it was only a seven-day vow. And so probably what happened here is Paul joined them with this vow, and then at the end of a Nazarite vow, they would, they would get a, uh, purchase an animal and bring it to sacrifice it in the temple, and then they would cut their hair. They hadn't cut their hair. 
And the elders say, hey, Paul, why don't you join them and then pay for their sacrifice? Because probably these four men were poor and animal sacrifices were expensive. So why don't you join them and bless them by paying for their sacrifice when it comes to the end of the vow? Now, the whole hope here by the elders was that by Paul joining them in this vow, that these rumors would be dispelled, right? That, that, that it would show that the rumors weren't true, that Paul had no problem observing customs of the Jews as long as it was understood that it, didn't, it wasn't a means of salvation. And the elders agree with this because they say in verse 25, they remind everyone about the letter that they wrote coming out of the Jerusalem council that the Gentiles did not have to get circumcised. They didn't have to follow the customs of the Jews. They just had to forsake idolatry and turn to Jesus. So what we have here is that Paul is in an effort to reach the Jewish people who he loved so deeply. Paul is living out his own stated policy in 1 Corinthians 9. Verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. I have become all things to all people and that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Now, it's hard for us to connect and relate to this. Paul taking on this vow of a Nazarite uh, what's going on here. Let me give you an example that I think is somewhat of a parallel that might help us understand. And that would be the observance of Lent. Okay, Lent is a 40-day period prior to Easter. And it's, it's done in to remember Jesus Christ's 40 days of fasting in the desert before his public ministry. And the purpose of Lent is to separate yourself from something, to separate yourself to the Lord for a period of time, to fast from something to really be able to focus on Christ. Some observe Lent, some don't. Uh, if you observe Lent, you're no better or worse of a Christian than someone doesn't observe Lent. Observing Lent doesn't get you points with God. It doesn't secure your salvation or assure you of your salvation. But if there were a group of people that were hardcore observers of Lent who maybe thought that their, Lent, uh, their observing of Lent somehow gave them more assurance of their salvation, I would have no problem becoming a hardcore observer of Lent for six weeks to establish a platform to speak the beauty and the freedom and the grace of the gospel to that group of people. That's what Paul was doing here with observing this Nazarite vow, this temporary Nazarite vow. There's another man, and before we get to that other man, let me just summarize what Paul is doing here. Paul is taking on their Judaism. 
Okay, Paul is taking on their Judaism in an effort to win them to Christ. And there's another man who has taken on something of ours, something that is very burdensome in an effort to rescue you, to rescue us from that burden. When Jesus Christ was born into this world, he took on our humanity. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he took on our curse. Our curse that we were under because of our sin. He marched to the cross to take on the burden of our curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And what's the curse of the law? It's the curse of death for breaking it, which we all have. It's eternal separation from God. It's eternal death. Jesus, born out of his deep love for you, his deep love for the very people who have rejected him, born out of that love, he took on the curse in our place. He took the curse upon himself. He took on the burden of your sin and the curse associated with it. There are two incredibly important points of application that flow out of Jesus bearing the curse for you. Jesus bearing your sin for you. Two points of application. And this is where the comfort is found in the burdens of life. First, Christ bearing your burden shapes how you respond to the burden of your sin. Christ bearing your burden shapes how you respond to the burden of your sin. I've shared this in the past, but many, many years ago, I was on a, a backpacking mission trip of sorts in France where we took a number of youth on a backpacking trip and unbelievers and shared the gospel with them on this journey through the mountains, Pyrenees Mountains, southern France. And on this trip, one of the leaders developed severe breathing problems in the mountains. And so I took her 30-pound pack from her, and I wore it on my front. And so I had my 40-pound pack on my back. I had her 30-pound pack on my front. When I initially tried to take her pack from her, even though she was at moments gasping for breath and having severe breathing problems, she said, Keith, I can carry it. I can carry it. I can handle it. And after a number of statements like this, I finally just looked her in the eyes and I said, 
If you carry it, it's going to kill you. And she said, okay, I'll let you carry it. I'll let you carry it. We do the same thing with our sin. We say, I can handle it. I can handle the burden of my sin. I can minimize the burden. I can get rid of the burden on my own by minimizing it, by making excuses for it or justifying it or blaming others for it. I can alleviate this burden on my own. And the answer is no. If you try to manage the burden of your sin on your own, it will kill you. You can't manage the burden of sin on your own. Some of you right now are in the midst of sin management. Trying to manage the burden on your own in my strong encouragement to you would be to quit managing your sin and seek the face of Christ. Because when you seek the face of Christ, he doesn't say to you, I can take that burden from you. When you seek the face of Christ, he says, I have already taken that burden from you. It doesn't belong to you. You're carrying something that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. Jesus took the burden of your sin. It belongs to him. It doesn't belong to you. And so when you're burdened by your sin, you don't find comfort in trying to manage it and trying to get rid of it by making excuses, by blaming others, all the various ways we do that. You find comfort by seeking the face of Christ and understanding that he bears the burden of your sin. It belongs to him. It doesn't even belong to you. Second point of application, Christ bearing the burden of your sin, Christ bearing your burden shapes how you respond to the burden of others. It shapes how you respond to the burden of others. While the burden of your sin doesn't belong to you, the burden of others does. Paul says in Galatians chapter six, verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How often do we do just the opposite? We bear the burden of our sin and we reject the burden of others. And let me just say, the reason we reject the burden of others is because the burden of sin is way too heavy. You have no margin in your life if you're bearing the burden of your sin. Zero margin. 
And so if you're bearing the burden of your own sin and somebody else comes to you with a burden, you have nothing. You have nothing to give them because your margins are zero. Christ calls us to just the opposite. Christ calls us to bear the burden of others by rejecting the burden of sin and remembering it belongs to him. When Christ is bearing your burden of sin, suddenly now you've got margin. You've got margin for others. You've got margin for bearing the burden of others. And this only happens when you're seeking the face of Christ. When you seek the face of Christ, he reminds you that your burden of sin belongs to him, and then he, by his spirit, will lay burdens of others in front of you that you can bear one another's burdens. I'll leave you with three questions. Number one, what sin is a heavy burden to you right now? What sin is a heavy burden to you? And how are you trying to get rid of that burden by minimizing it? Second question, what circumstance is a heavy burden to you right now? What circumstance is a heavy burden to you right now? And how are you trying to get rid of that burden by manipulating or controlling the situation to get rid of it? Third question. What person is a burden to you right now? And how are you trying to get rid of that burden? By rejecting them or by ignoring them or by giving them the silent treatment. You will never find comfort by trying to get rid of your burdens. You will only find comfort by seeking the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as a burdened people. The load of burden in this room is heavy because we live in a broken world. We are burdened by our sin. We're burdened by our circumstances. We are burdened by other people. And we confess to you that we are trying to find comfort by getting rid of those burdens. And yet, Father, we know that the only comfort that is to be found is by seeking the face of your son, Jesus Christ, who set his face like flint to Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday 2,000 or so years ago, facing an agonizing week of betrayal, arrest, torture, beating, and ultimately death, 
all because of a deep love for his people. Father, as we enjoy this meal that you've given us, may you use this meal. And even as we prepare in song for it, to remind us that the burden of our sin belongs to Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.